Chapter Fifteen of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen. Will Jeremy get back from Constantinople in time for the dance? This phrase, in universal use during the three days between the date of Dan's departure and the ball at Oldfort, reiterated absurdly in Amy Stevens' mind as, in the company of the four women who formed Jeremy Dan's household, she tumbled in the bus through the dark night, with everybody's skirts over her knee. Her own dress was black, all soft and draped, so it did not matter. Dulce, who was horribly glum and had several times refused to go at all, was in white, as white as her face, and had squeezed herself up into the far end of the omnibus, and meditated obviously on skulls and crossbones. Yet, Amy reflected, she was, in point of years, the youngest of them. Amy knew what was affecting her. She hoped against hope to meet Dickinson, and would then record her sensations on meeting him in the diary she had started the moment she became miserable. Amy was privileged to read the passionate and fierce production. She always rose from its perusal with the conviction that Dulce was going mad. She meant to speak seriously to the girl's father when he returned. But not tonight. She meant only to dance with him tonight. That is, if he should have so succeeded in abolishing the limits of time and space as to put in an appearance on such a little two-penny half-penny occasion as the ball at the old assembly rooms at Old Fort. Would he... Would he manage it? Amy was as excited about it as if she had loved him, and yet she knew that when once he was back in the house, a co-inmate with her as before, she would have no inclination even to flirt with him. It was an effect of glamour cast over the commonplace by the sense of long distances accomplished. She was, however, mysteriously assured that she would see him tonight. He would surely be there, spruce in his evening clothes and his round shoulders somewhat straightened for the occasion she would soon see him pulling on a pair of white gloves his practised dancer's eye roving all over the room convening his partners the man who all the night before had been covering austria germany and france in the orient express crossing frontiers in the dark holding up his papers to be peered at by the dim glimmer of official lanterns she knew every step of his procedure. He would arrive calmly at Oldfort, change at his office, get into his motor, and sample the waxed floor of the assembly rooms before another dawn had lightened the gay vigil and paled the gas-lamps of the country town. "'I shall keep three for Remy. He is far and away the best dancer I ever knew,' announced Lady Medrow to Mrs. Bowman, who in her snowy, stiff net ruffles and cap looked like a grave Rembrandt grandmother, facing a sportive spring by Botticelli. The two old ladies were more or less of an age, and Amy, in her tolerance, would not have had either of them change the parts which they both played so well. Lady Medrow's skilful décolletage was a miracle of skill. There was something piquant in Mrs. Bowman's abnegation of the lures of the flesh. She did not dance, but she supped, "'You and I, my dear,' she remarked to her sulky daughter-in-law, "'must chaperone these three young things.' "'Don't rub it in, Jeremy's mother, please,' the young matron pleaded. 
She had never at the best of times been counted a good dancer, but she bitterly resented the infraction of her pleasures entailed now and then by the performance of her wifely duties. Mr. Dand wanted an heir. You know how fond I am of dancing and going about, and life is rather tiresome for me just now. Well, but what are you, Edith? Let me see. Twenty-seven. It is rather late for you to be going on with your dancing, anyhow. I gave it up when I was twenty-five, on the stroke. I was still in my very prime, but I was determined that no man or boy, for it was mostly beardless youths from school one has to wrestle with nowadays, should call mine a duty dance. I have had men say to me, Oh, sorry, I must give poor Miss So-and-so a turn. To me, but never of me. Well, I don't know, said Lady Medrow. One is as young as one looks, and I was always able to trust the men for that. Certainly men don't err on the side of flattery, unless you put pressure on them. Their tacit opinion is all that is of value. You are thinking of your undergraduate admirers, are you not, dear Phoebe? But a man of the world always prefers a woman old enough to understand him. Indeed, dear Sir Mervyn used to say that my only fault was that I was too young for him to take advantage of. He called me Una. Oh, mamma, broke in her daughter, do for goodness sake spare us old Sir Mervyn and his opinions. He was a perfectly horrid old man, so I always thought, even when he gave me chocolates, and never spoke sincerely in his life unless it was something indecent. Edith, I cannot allow you to speak so of my friend. He was one of the greatest men of his time, and he did your mother the honour to admire her. You were a child. Chocolates were the only way to appeal to you. Yes, he'd got to appeal to everybody, even to a child in short frocks. He would have made love to Amy if she had been about the house in his time. Amy, quiet under the heavy skirts of the two disputants, realised with pleasure that Mr. Johnson had not betrayed her so far. I am much obliged to him, she thought, and I'll give him a dance or a sit-out, whichever he likes. Excepting myself, murmured Mrs. Bowman, Amy here is dressed the oldest, and I should have said that she was too pale for black. I'm rather jealous of her in it all the same. It sends up her matte-white complexion, said the other old lady. I wish I had her black and she my pink. Only, my dear, you do really want a little make-up. It is silly to stand out against it. You might as well, Amy, said Dulce roughly from her corner. Why be singular? Even Dawes makes up on Sundays. I've seen her slinking out. Red-lipped, and in a nice brown toupee, too, said Mrs. Bowman. Amy, I wonder you don't speak to her. Why should I interfere with the liberty of the subject? Die and let die, retorted Amy. So long as she does her work, I have nothing to do with her weekly complexion. Let her follow, in fact, where her betters lead, began Mrs. Bowman. Oh, we're there! For an unearthly bump testified to a collision with the horse-block at the door of the old Jacobean Hall, where these rites were held. "'Does anyone see Jeremy?' asked Edith. "'He might have managed to be there to help us out.' Amy's heart fell as she replied, "'No, I can only see Mr. Johnson trying to assimilate his white kid gloves.' "'He will have to be our cavalier,' said Lady Medrow, "'till Jeremy comes.' Why doesn't the silly man come forward and help us out? 
I'm not so good at leaving the carriage without showing my ankles as I once was. I'll get out first, as I have got no calves, said Amy reassuringly. It was her testimony to the fact that women, as a rule, abhor all forms of fleshy development. Amy, as the due expression of her gratitude, danced with Mr. Johnson, who cut, however, as she had expected, a very poor figure in a ballroom. She saw herself with the introspective eye of a specialist in the art, turning patiently round and round in the too close but ineffectual grip of the author, and was not enamoured of the spectacle they must aesthetically both present. But Mr. Dand was not there. She chattered prettily away to Mr. Johnson, and pretended to want to rest as often as she dared. Sometimes when they sat down, she looked at him slyly, sideways, and remembered him in the old days, and saw again the disgusted expression of his face, as they bent over the dead body of Sir Mervyn together, and again when he had closed the door of Sir Mervyn's study on her, and hindered her from securing her legacy. And he was the man who had refused to marry her, because he thought she was not respectable. She wondered how many other pairs of partners in the room had quite such an uncomfortable set of recollections between them. She would become a little abstracted, then Johnson, the potential villain of her story, would boyishly polish his ivory forehead and suggest, "'Another turn?' "'I'm tired,' she said curtly, in reply to his latest attempt to lure her back to ignominy. Her flow of pretty ballroom conversation also ceased abruptly. Mr. Johnson looked round with newly awakened suspicion. Jeremy Dand had come in. Amy's partner led her to a buffet. His expression had changed, and he looked as novelists must look when they have come to the chapter, embodying the crux of their narrative. Amy soon realized that she had, diplomatically speaking, made a fool of herself, and for what? The prospect of changing a bad partner for a good one, and some of the latest on dits of Constantinople? That was all, but Mr. Johnson's suspicions had been awakened and she could no longer treat the guilty knowledge between them as a joke. She would have preferred to vanish like Lamia after the sage Apollonius had spoken. No use. She must stand and deliver. Did you know that Mr. Dand, who has just come in, as I see you observe, is by way of being a splendid performer in this line? He asked her, bending on her his clumsy inquisitorial gaze. Yes, I had heard so from Lady Metro. Here she is on her son-in-law's arm. Mr. Johnson's little single-candle-power eyes were still fixed ridiculously on Amy's face. He wouldn't be a good detective, Amy jibed, to give herself courage, as she stood still and heard Jeremy Dand ask his mother-in-law shortly and perfunctorily to state her wishes in the way of sustenance. What will you have, Poupée? Mr. Dand's voice caused her no obvious because no real emotion whatever, though she had not seen him for fourteen days. Such nonsense it all was. She was surprised at herself, for certainly the rumour of his coming had produced in her a certain amount of excitement. She could not deny it. But the tides of emotion flow oddly and capriciously, and have a way of leaving you high and dry, stranded on a rock, when you have expected to be utterly submerged. If she was surprised, Mr. Johnson was disappointed. She could discover it in his face, as he registered her own mild degree of elation. 
Mr. Dand made no haste to reach Amy's side, moreover, although he must have seen her, as he passed, with his exigeant relation on his arm. Mr. Johnson's characters had refused to keep pace with his plot. Amy's spirits rose, and she considered the possibility of strangling this latest literary creation at birth. "'Shall we go and sit down somewhere?' Johnson was saying, with some meaning. "'Or would you rather stay about here?' "'So that Mr. Dant can ask me to dance,' she said boldly. "'No, thank you. That will come all in good time. Meanwhile, I should rather like a word with you.' "'You frighten me,' said Johnson. And indeed he looked frightened. "'I know, because you are an author,' said Amy, leading him to a long, empty committee-room, covered and cheered up with red bays, that you see romance in everything, even in rolling stones.' "'Neither you nor Jeremy Dand are stones,' said Mr. Johnson. "'Well, we both roll. But I am glad you are willing to come straight to the point. It makes it easier. Do you know there is a fatal fascination about talking to you on this subject?' which I have tried to resist and cannot, though it is most disagreeable to me. I don't suppose I can do any good, but I may as well try to diplomatize a bit. "'You are afraid of my betraying you?' said Mr. Johnson. "'No, not actually afraid. But I want to know if you have done so, or intend doing so. I do not forget that you have got me turned out of one situation already.' There was, then, the future of a young boy to be considered. And what harm am I about to do now? You can break up another home. But, good God, you seem to consider me an adventuress. I do. It is your type, a sort of Sidonia, like the heroine of the medieval tale. Medieval, indeed. Family herald, more. You tell yourself tales. You weave a plot round me and hope it will develop itself without giving your invention any further trouble. But all the while, I know you know that I am perfectly innocent. You who know the circumstances. Tell me, hadn't I to make my living like yourself, like everybody? I couldn't pay for a chaperone, could I? Was I to refuse a good situation for fear of losing my reputation? Who on earth cared about my reputation? My dead father? my mad mother in Pottinger's asylum? Of course, if anyone were to take the trouble to say nasty things, I don't deny that the situation lent itself admirably. But who was going to bother about me, except to be spiteful, and that is no trouble, ever? I suppose I annoyed you in the old days, supplanted you? It's a cheap revenge you're going in for, Mr. Johnson. He stirred uneasily under her gaze. One realizes that you have been much abused. Don't use that horrid word about me. I don't want your pity or anybody's pity. All I want is to know what weapons I have got to protect myself with, and who is out against me. Then I can fight. Are you my enemy? Only under certain contingencies. What are they? I have not as yet breathed a word of the incidents of your career, and the interpretation that has necessarily been put upon them, in this household, nor will I, unless loyalty to my friend and his wife appear to me to demand it. Then, for I conceive that I owe no loyalty to you, nobody does hang it all. Under those circumstances, I shall have to speak. Miss Stevens, when I saw you to-night, 
I was appalled by the manifestation of emotions that might submerge our quiet lives here in horror. I saw your eyes glisten when he came into the room. Your very sentences came broken from your lips. You exhibited every symptom of amorous disturbance known to me. I began to wonder if it was even now too late to save him. To get me chucked, you mean? Well, Mr. Johnson, I will tell you quite frankly, I don't want to be chucked naturally not ah but my reason is such a little reason a very young one it is not that i am in love with mr dand i am not i am not in love with anybody i attempt from love's sickness to fly like the man in the song i don't believe in it how should i i am not young and every man who has ever said he cared for me has made trouble for me one way or another love is so cheap there must be something better for us who are tired of it, mortally sick of the very sound of it, echoing through the world, upsetting everything, putting everybody by the ears. I believe I could get on better with you, who have honestly refused, on principle, to have anything to do with me in that way, than any man who is likely to persecute and disturb me with professions of love. If only I could once for all convince you of my aims and motives— could I not? Am I not frank enough? No woman is frank when her heart is concerned. Yes, I dare say she's a monster of diplomacy, if her heart is concerned. But mine isn't, you see. You speak conventionally like a novelist. The novelist interests me more to talk to in a general way. But couldn't you put him aside for a moment and be a man? Believe that I am oldish, a weary, cynical, anemic woman— quite out of court for that sort of thing. Lead a man on me. But there is a member of the Dand household that I do adore, only that person's years number not more than five. I will do anything sooner than lose my place near her, and surely you see that an intrigue with her father would be the easiest way to secure dismissal by the mother. Of course I do like and appreciate Mr. Dand. One can hardly help it, considering his context." He shines by contrast. I don't love him as you do, but I cannot help seeing that he is the only intelligent person, barring yourself, in the house since poor Dulce got so queer. And such a dead weight of dull women, too, as we carry. I cannot say I care much for the society of women. I have gone about the world a good deal, and I have always somehow got talking to men, and heard men's view of things. "'Yes, the old ladies are dreary old parquet,' said Mr. Johnson, spinning the most useless of webs. "'And you are a clever, all-round woman who thinks and reads. Well, listen, I will propose a test. Do you agree with it?' "'I will try. What is it?' "'Don't dance with Jeremy tonight on any pretext whatever. I never heard such a stagey proposition in my life.' "'It will satisfy me,' said Johnson. "'Do you agree to it?' "'Oh, yes, but I'm rather sorry all the same.' "'Ah, there you are. I knew I was right. "'Do you suppose, if I loved him, I would be only rather sorry? "'Ah, Mr. Johnson, learn your trade. "'I am sorry because Mr. Dand is by far and away the best dancer in the room, "'and I adore dancing. "'Now let us go back and put me through my trial.' "'Do you despise me?' he asked. "'Yes, a little.' I almost wish, Amy Stevens, that I had married you after all. 
and got your fifteen thousand pounds on the contrary that is the only action on your life for which i do not despise you i did not think you had it in you to refuse even a bitter pill like me with all that jam but amy amy now you have commanded my respect by the way you have carried this through you have a courage a power of expression yes i am rather proud of it myself replied amy smiling and flirting her fan she was one of those suburban-minded persons who still believe that much can be done with a fan and refuse to abandon it at the dictate of fashion and now mr johnson now that we have thrashed it out satisfactorily i don't see why we should not be friends do you i am quite an admirer of yours of your art she added hastily for there was no one else in the annex and the feeling that dictated the clumsy and amateurish movement he made towards her was unmistakable amy did not even take her hand away she looked at it lying in his i have not spoken so very well she said gravely unless i have convinced you that that sort of thing isn't in my line a figure appeared at the far end of the pathway of red bays and mr johnson flung her hand away Shh! he exclaimed nervously here's dand now mind your promise you fool amy cried to him as she rose to her feet scenting work to do and a possible call on her energies can't you see he is not coming to ask me to dance what is it mr dand you look upset dulce she started to walk home an hour ago in her ball dress end of chapter 15 recorded by lisa reichert